Hi, everyone. Tom Rogers here, Director of Teachers Talk Radio. Thanks very much for tuning in and listening to this show. This show is sponsored and supported by Witherslack Group, Collins Big Cat, and by Renaissance. We can't be more excited to be sponsored by these fantastic companies. Please check them out on their websites, which are available through our website at ttradio.org. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from London. This is the Sunday Morning Breakfast Show with Sobia Iqbal on Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning. You're listening to Sobia Stella Sunday. It's Sunday the 30th of January and I have the most fabulous conversations coming your way today. Hidden lessons, the secret life of teachers, and do we need to focus more on quality careers education within the profession, which actually has an impact on students' lives. It's another thrilling morning. Prepare for takeoff. Live from London, this is the Sunday Morning Breakfast Show with Sobia Iqbal on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash lsw slash ttradio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag ttradio. Mehreen Baig is a former teacher, trailblazing broadcaster and a published author. Passionate about education and empowering young women, she has emerged as an influential voice across a range of topics including feminism, race, faith and gender equality. In 2020, Mehreen released The Secret Life of Teachers on BBC Radio 4 and has also taken part in numerous award-winning documentaries. She was also named one of the most inspirational and powerful women of the year by The Telegraph alongside Adele and Michelle Obama. She's a regular reporter on The Sunday Morning Live and works for The One Show regularly. Mehreen used to be a teacher and still continues to work as a tutor and coach. I can't wait for today's show right after this. Right, welcome to the show, everybody. Um, just wanted to say that um, I've had COVID this week, so I'm a bit uh, sensitive. <laughs> if uh, if I, my hosts take over, please uh, carry on with the show. Mehreen and Andrea are both well experienced, and I will try my best to get through everything. Do message in and type in like you normally do. Uh, really, really pleased to have both guests on today. Um, Mehreen, are you there? I am here. That was such a dramatic opening. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, just to um, start off, Mehreen, I've been obviously, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. I've been listening to your podcast and I've been following your work. Um, the difference between our podcast, because I have been listening to your podcasting skills and I was laughing earlier because I was saying she's a teacher. She's also a podcaster. She's definitely going to be assessing a mind. <laughs> today um so please don't be too harsh when you give your feedback um your podcast is not confidential obviously because um sorry your podcast is confidential and we're not actually because we're still teachers working within the profession so we have to be careful but i really loved your podcast because it really highlighted some really interesting topics of conversation that teachers don't actually get to say out loud 
Yeah. So thank you for producing that. <laughs> um, oh, I loved it. That was, I mean, it was such a random thing. Um, it was never like on my plan to start a podcast. It was never on my list of things that I thought I would be doing anytime soon. And then the pandemic hit and I come from a family of teachers. My sister's a teacher, my brother's a teacher and my brother's wife's a teacher, my cousins, literally all of us. So we would sit down and it was during the time when obviously there was all the upheaval with results and people didn't know um, what would happen when we go back to school. And my brother was clinically vulnerable. So it was a really kind of really anxious time for us um, thinking about him going back um, in that September. Was it last year, I think? Um and, you know, there were plans of bubbles and one-way systems. And I thought, well, how are you going to do, how is the government going to implement any of this in actually in school? So there was all this sort of talk and we would sit at home and we'd be talking about these things. And I thought people need to hear these conversations. They need to actually hear what, what teachers are really discussing and not just the headlines they're seeing on the news. So obviously we couldn't get any teachers to talk if we um, didn't keep it yeah um confidential and we didn't hide their identity so that's how the secret life of teachers was kind of born and it did it did really well because marine we've lost because, you yeah still i guess there? people found it interesting to see what was going on behind the scenes We've had a few people messaging saying hello to you, Mehreen. There's listeners from Leeds. Uh, there's listeners, um, our listeners range from all over the country and globally as well. So thank you for coming in today. And they all just want to say hello. Um, what's the first word that comes to mind, Mehreen? Coming back to the classroom. So, uh, explain that again. The first word that comes to mind when you say coming back to the classroom. Yes, oh, exactly. Hard work. I know that's two words kind <laughs> of, but yeah, hard work yeah um so you wouldn't um if the government said um okay they have released it and said you know um people we need yeah. you teachers ex-teachers please do come back um unfortunately it wasn't very successful so does that mean you wouldn't it's come back really either? funny you ask that because i've been having these talks a lot in my house um and actually funnily enough i did um, get in touch. I'm in touch with my the school that I used to teach um, in any way, but I got in touch with them and I said um, a couple of weeks ago that if they need someone to come back in and teach, then I'll be happy to do that. Um, and I was going to sign up to like a supply agency, um, but very, very long story short, I ended up having an operation and I couldn't. Um, so I would... I think it's very cheeky to ask teachers to go back into the classroom, teachers who are retired and vulnerable or teachers who have already been driven out of the, uh, the profession, asking them to come back now that you need them is definitely a cheeky ask, um, particularly when not much has been done, in my opinion, to keep schools safe. However, I would be happy to go back for the children rather than to help the government out. I'd be happy to go for the kids. And I think that's the same with all of us, really. I mean, you know, you've mentioned this before in your in your book as well, that most of us uh, teachers, we normally come in to make a difference and do it for the sake of the kids. And it, it's true. Um, a, a lot of my work is also based around um, the fact that all decisions should be made around uh, our children. And you explain it very explicitly in your book as well. And there's numerous accounts of stories about children that you're discussing which actually when I was reading could relate to everything and I just thought to myself it's so um it's so 
interesting to find that a lot of teachers think and feel the same things, but nobody openly talks about it um because obviously we we do all have careers and we are in the public eye and we we are supposed to be role models and we have to be very careful of what we say um and that's quite a huge burden on us as teachers i think yeah it's a it's a massive responsibility but yeah as i say in the book no one people don't become teachers because they think they're going to become millionaires from it they don't become teachers because they think they're going to get kind of worldwide fame and recognition when someone becomes a teacher it's because they genuinely like children and they want to help children and they want to make a difference and they love their subject and all those kind of reasons um but the unfortunate truth is that the majority of decisions that that are made in regarding the british education system are not actually made with the children at, at the heart of them they're not made with children in mind and what's you know, in their best interest. And that's a real shame. And it's a big part of why, why I left. Um, yeah, it, I mean, obviously, we've got to consider, you know, stakeholders who are involved in the education system, because that is one of the things that we don't think about when we're young teachers coming into the profession. I mean, I remember 17 years ago, when I came into the profession, I didn't think about politics. And I certainly <laughs> didn't think about how much it would influence my life in the classroom. Mm -hmm. But it does. Uh, and you know, you've mentioned it as well in your book that it's not until you actually see things happening in the classroom, and you see decisions being made, and you see the way that things are happening behind the scenes that it really makes you question whether the education system is fit for purpose fit for, for certain purpose. types of students yeah no completely I mean gosh you've got do you, do you think I knew anything about politics when I was 21 and started teaching I had no idea absolutely no idea um no political stance whatsoever really um but you can't help but but get an opinion you can't help but become aware when you yeah when decisions are being made that directly impact on on your on your life and the kids who you work with day in and day out and the the big issue is and again as you completely rightly say i discuss in my book that the decisions that are made about what happens in school are made by people who have never stepped foot in a state school in their lives they didn't go to one they don't actually you know, they don't actually know what's happening on the ground. They're not aware. And so they're making all these decisions sitting from wherever high up they are um, with no real idea of how it's going to impact the people who are who are in these schools and actually living these lives. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there. And um, sometimes it is, I mean, I've worked luckily across the sector. So I've worked in private schools, grammar schools and normal comprehensives. And there is a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the teachers are necessarily better in any type of schooling. Mm -hmm. I just think that the decisions that are made and the way that things are carried out are, are slightly uh, different. And the resources, the access to resources is obviously an issue as well. Now, here are some interesting facts about Mehreen. Um, <laughs> so I have been, uh, I don't think it's called stalking these days. I think it's called researching. So um, apparently she auditioned for The X Factor. Uh, is that true? That is true. <laughs> How far did you get in The X Factor? 
Um, I, I can't even remember. I was so young. I, I remember I was doing my A-levels and I thought I was going to be a pop star. And then I lied to my family and went to the audition. I think I got through, <laughs> like, there's like a third round before it goes onto um, actual TV. And I think I got through to then and I told my dad and I was like, oh, I've got something to tell you. I've auditioned for the X Factor. And he's like, nope, not happening. No daughter of mine's going to go on X Factor. And I was like, well, okay, that's the end of my singing dreams. <laughs> and um the other interesting fact uh, I think it's fabulous by the way the fact that you're such a risk taker because it's probably something I would do not the X Factor I might do Britain's Got Talent but not the X Factor <laughs> what would um, be? my talent I I'd have to think about that carefully um there's a lot of things that I do do so um, one of the things that I, I started doing uh before the pandemic hit and I need to get back into was Japanese sword fighting I find, oh, wow. it, so I find it so fascinating um and it's kind of like it's something that I I, I need to think about carefully because with my health right now <laughs> I don't yeah. think I can be I don't think I should be picking up swords or anything <laughs> um okay so the other uh, interesting fact about you and I was really impressed with this Mary nine A stars at GCSE yeah yeah brilliant I mean, it is quite impressive. When I look back, I don't know how on earth I did it. Do you know, I, um, like I say, because I come from a family of teachers and I'm also the baby of the family. So my sister's eight years older than me. And my brother's 12 years older than me. Um, and so I basically had four parents who were very strict on education um, and not even strict in a, oh, they stuffed it down my throat kind of way. Strict in a, it was naturally embedded within our everyday lives. So like we, we went to the library and we would re, like devour books on a daily basis. That's what we did. That was our family day out. Um, my sister would come home every day with a new sort of, uh, textbook to work through for me and it was the best present ever I used to look forward to when she would get home from college or university and I could just I would sit there for hours and I would just work through these textbooks and then get her to mark it at the end and get really excited when I got my final like grade um my brother bought me my first desktop and I would sit there for hours on end and I would write stories so it was almost like I began revising for my GCSEs when I was about eight years old and I was watching my sister do hers and I would sort of just sit with her and learn all the GCSE kind of curriculum. Um, so I actually found I did not struggle with my GCSEs at all because I felt like I was ready for it for, for years before before I got to year 11. A-levels um, is a different story. A-levels <laughs> A levels did not go to plan. Um, yeah, well, you exactly. know what? I was when I was reading, I was sitting there laughing because it was similar to mine. Um, I got A stars at GCSE as well, and when I got to A levels, I didn't do as well as I thought I would do, and that's probably yeah. because of the the place that I chose as well. Looking back now, I think I could have probably uh, chosen a better place to go to, but I did find it fascinating because it's something that I, I thought about when I was reading uh, your book that when you're a child uh, when you're a student at that age for you to get that achievement at that age says a lot you know it shows somebody's dedication and commitment uh, and the fact that you're now trailblazing you know globally is absolutely fantastic and I, I you know I absolutely love it um one of your other highlights of your career <laughs> is that you found 50 pounds in the car park and you donated it to children in need. 
Um, I found that funny because um, to put this in context, you said that when you started going for job interviews, there were lots of people there who were different to the kind of people that you were used to. And you thought that you had done something spectacular, which it was for a young young person at that time. But then there were these other people who were completely different to you, right? <laughs> I think, it, oh God, it was one of the most mortifying experiences of my life. So I was searching graduate schemes, as you do, sort of getting to the end of uni, figuring out what I want to do in my life. And someone said, look at graduate schemes. And there were all these shiny graduate schemes that were offering cars and great starting salaries and God knows what else. So I applied to one and I went to the interview um, with no real training. And I guess this is another, this kind of links back to... Um, the private and state sector kind of argument because obviously particularly the schools that I went to and I went to more than one we moved school quite a lot growing up um there was no training given for in our schools and our colleges about what to do in um job interviews and um, even at uni really there was no real place to learn what I'm supposed to do in group settings so I just kind of went and thought I'd improvise um and again, we were never, we weren't well off growing up. So where these people came and they said, oh, I did this expedition with my school and I did this mountain climbing and I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro when I was 17. And I, how do people afford to do these things? Like, where, how do, who, who does that? They were coming out with things that I literally had never heard of in my life. And I felt completely out of place. Um, I, I didn't, God, it was just, it was so embarrassing. It was, uh, it was awful. But I, looking back, I'm, it's, yeah, a funny story that I can share. And looking back, I am glad I got to experience it. Um, but it was my first kind of taster of, God, people grow up very differently. People have very yeah. different lives. To think at 17, people are climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and raising three million pounds for donkeys of wherever it's yeah a complete different life to what I was living but since then I mean you have achieved so much so can you tell us more about your journey um including your career accomplishments and how did you shift from the classroom to then come into the world of television um so I taught English and I loved writing um, but obviously, when you're a teacher, you get very little time to do anything else and to do any writing. Um, and one day I was in my late 20s. I was at work and something really annoyed me. Um, and I had a free period that morning. And honestly, so I don't know what made me do it. But I went to the English office in my free period and I decided I was going to write they say a blog. I didn't even know what blogging was at the time. I wrote like an article. I wrote a piece. I wrote something about the thing that had annoyed me. Um, and that night I was just really pleased with it. And I thought, God, I haven't written in ages. And this is a really, this is a really good piece of writing. And I put it up on the internet for my friends to read it. And I went to sleep thinking nothing of it. The next morning um, when I woke up, people in Kazakhstan and Uganda were reading <laughs> <laughs> this blog and it was everywhere and the BBC found it and they left a comment I still remember I was actually at work when I saw the comment and they said can you please get in touch we'd like to talk to you about working for us um and it was very exciting I thought oh my god this is the best thing ever and I told my mum and I phoned them and they asked me to take part in 
what would become Muslims Like Us, which was my first show. Um, and for those of those people who don't know, it was essentially 10 Muslims who lived in a house together. So it sounded very Muslim Big Brother-ish. Uh, <laughs> and so I said no. Uh, and I said no for about three months um, and they were very persistent and they, you know, lots of phone calls. They asked to come to my house. They said, Maureen, can we come to your house and sit with your family and you and talk about any kind of worries that you have, any apprehensions that you have. And it was after three months, they, they came to my house and when they left, my dad really basically got on with um, one, of, one of the guys who had come and my dad said, look, what are you worried about? And I said, dad, they're going to put me in a house with nine other Muslims who are going to tell me I can't be Muslim because I've got long nails um, <laughs> or because my, I show my hair. And I don't really fancy spending three weeks of my time doing that, um, particularly when I was in a job that I was already really, you know, I'd just been promoted at work and I was, I was really happy. And my dad said, I still remember, he said, I didn't raise you to be weak. I didn't raise you to be stupid. Um, and he basically said that opportunities don't come all the time and you, you need to basically give this a go and see, see what happens. And it was that day that I said, yes, um, and I agreed to do Muslims Like Us. And then for a year, after, even after filming Muslims Like Us, before it had come out, I was sort of Hannah Montana and I'd go to work in the morning um, and then I'd sneak out a little bit early and I'd go and film something like for the one show or something. I'd go and film something in the evening because I couldn't leave a stable career in teaching that I was really good at and I was really enjoying yeah. for the complete unknown. I didn't know anything about, about TV world and I didn't know if it would, you know, even last if it would give me an income um but then muslims like us went and won the bafta uh, award and i was doing the speech for it one night and the next morning i was doing a seven o'clock gcse masterclass in school and i just thought this is really crazy and at some point something's got to give i've got to pick one or the other um and i resigned from teaching that september in 2017 and i decided to do tv full time so yeah i'm still a newbie i'm still you know, it hasn't, it hasn't been too long. I'm sort of almost four years in, um, but who knows, who knows what the future holds. Maybe I'll go back uh, to Yeah. And also, you know, since then you, you have become this uh, global icon and you have become an author as well. What were the highlights of your teaching career? Because you were quite a strict teacher and I was laughing because there were parts in your book that I could relate to because obviously you're you're representing uh, Muslims and a, a very uh, interesting point that you made, uh, which I think is really, really important for people to understand is that we're all different mm. even within our own community south asian community muslim community wh whatever it is race or religion we're all different people mm. and yet we still get all lumped together <laughs> obviously because we're, we're from the same um same group and so what were the highlights of your teaching career and were there any lows as well because you suffered quite a lot <laughs> yeah i think all teachers do i don't think i suffered any more um than you know any regular teacher particularly one who's working in the state sector or working in quite a challenging area um would i i mean highs it's the little highs isn't it every, like every day you'll have something like so there was a boy um who i taught for example who was from a really really challenging background and 
at the end. And actually, funnily enough, this was, I taught him when he was in year eight. I taught him when he was in year nine. I taught him when he was in year 11 again. Um, he came and joined my class and he ended up with no GCSEs, um, except for one in English that he passed. And I know, I mean, I don't even know what he's doing now with his life, but I remember on results day, he opened up his, um, his sheet and he had passed nothing, which isn't a great outcome, but he had passed English. He had a four, um, in English language. And that, that is, it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant, beautiful feeling because even no matter what he goes on to do, he knows that all that work he put in, in my classroom and he, he knows all that effort and all the, all the pages that he had written and all that revision, it didn't go to waste. And there is, you know, a small chance that maybe at some point in his life, he will remember that moment as a happy moment because he was, he was really proud of himself. It's those little moments in teaching that have the biggest kind of impact. Um, obviously there was a promotion that I went for, as I said, and they were 12 other members of staff who were going for the same role. And I was the least experienced at the time. So when I, when I got the job when I got when I was given the promotion that was another I high love that story <laughs> it was amazing yeah exactly I write about it in the book and they were you know very interesting people going up against me but you know what it's interesting because the reason why I'm saying that is because men in education sometimes not all men some men they do have this um you know they are getting promoted much quicker than women and you know we do need more women represented you know at senior levels especially in leadership oh, levels um, and especially from, you know, the black and minority ethnic groups mm. as well, we need a lot more diversity and inclusion. And so when I read that story of how you, you know, spent ages saying, right, I'm going to go out of my way to prove to you yeah. that I can do it. I absolutely love that attitude. It was a very strong female kind of mentality where we just know that actually we can do whatever we put our minds to and I absolutely love that it Thank was really you. good no, you know you're, do you know what though the funny thing is had I and in the book I talk about this that before sort of the day before the interview there was a, there was a member of staff who basically announced that I there's no chance I would get the job and you know what maybe if that hadn't have happened maybe I wouldn't have got the job because the fire that put in my belly that I stayed up all night and I created a brand new folder and the preparation that I put in and that in those 24 hours before that job interview, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have gone in with that same kind of passion and hunger had he not said that. So in a way, you're completely right. Like, um, particularly, I mean, women are underestimated and like often the the people and the men who shout the loudest end up getting the promotions but in that case it it really helped me i was like yeah underestimate me we that'll be fun um and it and it, you know look at where that underestimation got to because you're now living a lifestyle yeah. that most people would want to aspire to especially young females who are at you know a very um influential age and you are representing those young females and yeah kudos to you well done That's very kind thank you it's very kind you know what it's 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 so lovely to hear that because when you're in it, you don't always necessarily feel like that. I don't, I absolutely don't feel like 
I mean, even when I'm listening to, you know, like, oh, global icon and aspirational lifestyle. And really not a lot of my life has changed from when I was a teacher. I mean, there are definitely moments where I think, gosh, I'm, I'm definitely very, I'm very fortunate. I'm very lucky. I'm very blessed. But really on a day-to-day basis, I feel like there's just a lot more to do. I feel like there's a lot more to do. And I always still have that one foot in teaching. I have that one foot just thinking, shall I go back to the classroom? Because as much as, you know, there can be really fun moments and glamorous moments and whatnot in telly, and as much as teaching is so difficult and it's such hard work and it can be so draining and exhausting and stressful, the highs of teaching, nothing really compares to that. And I mean, I genuinely mean that. There is not a single moment I can tell you that I've experienced while working in television that compares to the highs that you feel when you're teaching, when you have those magical lessons and those magical moments where the kids do something really great, nothing compares to that. Yeah, and there's a few messages have, that have come in. Loads of people liking the show. Thank you very much for liking the show. Uh, Zara said, said childhood stories, your childhood story shows how important representation is for young people. And yes, A-levels are a different ball game for sure. Um, and also uh, she couldn't relate or empathise with what you're saying more. So basically she's agreeing with everything you're saying. Uh, Zara's a, a, an Asian female as well. And uh, she knows how, how it is because she's also in leadership uh, and she's also seen what it's like. And what, what impressed me uh, about some of the things that you were saying in your book were you know 100% spot on because like you were saying earlier people outside of the profession and people who are making decisions for things that are happening within the classroom aren't necessarily happening uh, in the right way so what are your thoughts on Ofsted? Because there was a section <laughs> on Ofsted that you wrote and I'm gonna I'm laughing at this because Obviously, I'm not allowed to swear on the radio um, because we do have uh, lots of different types of people listening in, including parents uh, and uh, students. And I, I don't want anyone to uh, report me. <laughs> so um, I'm going to bleep that word. But Ofsted, so we're going to take the acronym. You said it sounds like overpaid F stressing teachers every day. <laughs> what are your thoughts on Ofsted? I think that sums it up really perfectly. I think, um, <laughs> gosh, uh, I should probably be careful what I say too. Okay. Um, I feel like uh, you cannot go into someone's lesson for 20 minutes um, at any point in the, at the beginning of the lesson, in the middle, randomly at the end and and think that you have enough information to judge that teacher on how good a job they're doing. That 20 minute snapshot gives you no context on how hard that teacher works, on the issues that they're having to deal with, on the students and the issues that students are dealing with, the obstacles that you're having to overcome, the, I mean, I just think it's a completely bizarre idea. And you get people who aren't even teachers themselves coming in and judging you on your teaching, the audacity. I mean, how dare you? I think it's, I think it's laughable when you think about the fact that someone thinks they can come in and tell you about how good a job you're doing after a 20 minute snapshot. 
it's just I think it's ridiculous it's completely not fit for purpose <laughs> there were a couple of um things that made me howl out with laughter because it was so reminiscent of like you know our experiences of teaching as well um the bit where you were talking about um when you know you were putting on a show because Austin were coming in and, and your relationships and your relationships with your students was fantastic because they all got in the act and they were like miss miss they're coming in they're coming in let's change this and then the other bit when your when your head teacher I think it was your head teacher somebody senior who came in to tell you that Austin were coming in and then she she tricked you because yeah. they actually weren't um very very amusing I was laughing throughout uh, the whole of that but honestly, who like who genuinely goes in there and says, ah, I'm just going to teach a lesson like I always do. No one does. And it is just this big song and dance, this big performance, which is not anywhere near what the reality is like. And do you know what the reality is? You can't be an outstanding teacher every day. You can't teach less. Like it's not realistic. The amount of planning and prep that goes into planning an outstanding lesson that's going to be observed. You can't do that for, uh, for six periods a day, every single day of the week. They, they, they simply aren't with, they simply are not enough hours in the day. Um, so yeah, everyone, we just turn into clowns for a day. Everyone just puts on a performance. And hopefully if your kids like you, if your students like you, then they get on board and they help you and they lie for you and they put their hands up. And if they don't like you, then you're screwed. And um, what do you think about parental engagement? Because there's this really beautiful story that you wrote um, talking about how your whole family used to attend parents' evenings. Oh. And I found that really, really beautiful. Because <laughs> obviously coming from a minority ethnic background, it, it hurts me sometimes when I see students who are from the same background as me, whose parents aren't as engaged in their education. So when I read the fact that your whole family used to turn up, I found that so so beautiful like what are your thoughts on uh, parental engagement it's I mean I think parental engagement is is so important it's hugely hugely vital um to student success um and the unfortunate truth is and I don't know if you know I'm going to get in trouble for saying this but I think not enough parents in general across the board care enough about their kids education um and that's just like are, or are able to give their child's education the thought and the attention and the time that is needed. I was very fortunate that I had a, that I had a family that was so on board and so involved and so able to help me. Um, but you know, in working in the school that I did, there were obviously there were parents who wanted to help but weren't able to for various reasons. Then there were parents who didn't turn up to parents evening parents who didn't answer the phone when we called home and you just think you know I could you're getting a phone call from your child's school this could be something really important it could something could have happened to your child we could be calling for any reason you can't just not pick up the phone and not call back and there were lots of parents who who were not reachable but then saying that um, I've got friends and family members who teach in really renowned private schools and one thing I've realized is that even there, or maybe even more so there, you've got parents who are so almost obsessed with their own lives or parents who are too busy with their business and their work or parents who are too busy going on skiing trips in the south of France that they aren't there for their 
for their children's education and to really be a part of their child's school life. And I know that's a lot easier said than done. Like I know I'm making it, I'm simplifying it and I'm making it sound like, you know, everyone should just be available at all times. It's not what I'm saying, but neglect, you know, has different ways um, of being shown. And that's across the state and the private sector. I just think parents don't always, yeah, aren't always as involved as they as they should be, as they need to be. Um, and when parents are involved and when they are on board, it makes the absolute world of difference because it's a team. It is a team effort. It's got to be the child. It's got to be the teacher and the school. And it's got to be the family. And when all of those sort of components work hand in hand, that's when a child reaches their true potential. Now, um, the more I read, the more I, I realised that there, you know, there were your values came across quite strongly uh, in the book because you mentioned um, Hutchins and you said that you believed in liberal education because it frees people from the prison of their class, race, time, background, family, and even their nation. And you made a comment saying that knowledge in the world is pointless if you can't communicate with mm. students and I think that's really really important because I remember when I was at when I was at university one of the main reasons why I struggled at university because I did go to a Russell Russell Group University mm. was mm. that we had teachers from Oxbridge um, and you know that some of them just couldn't relate because we just we just didn't understand the information that was you know mm -hmm. being taught or being delivered in the way that it should have been mm -hmm. um i've my next guest after this is from oxbridge and she's completely different because mm -hmm. i worked with her and the way that she was teaching the kids lapped it up so mm. you know, it, you know, it, you do have to think about the way that you communicate and deliver information um, to students. And I thought I found it uh, interesting that you know, you were somebody who agreed with that. Yeah, um, I, I, gosh, I just feel like, and I've seen it time and time again. I feel like we often look for who on paper is going to have the shiniest degree from the shiniest place. And actually the fact is that people who end up, and not all, but a lot of the people who end up going to the top universities, particularly Oxbridge, is not necessarily because they're the brightest. It's not necessarily because they're even the most hardworking. It's not necessarily the most anything. It's because they, a, a lot of them had were given the best opportunities. And like I say, it's definitely not all of them, but a lot of them had the best opportunities given to them in their schooling, in the resources, in their networking, in their, you know, financially, which gave them a whole other kind of level of tuition and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so to think that the best teachers will be the people who end up um, with those kind of glossy degrees is, is nonsense because teaching you know teaching is so much more than just having subject knowledge you can have all the knowledge in the world but if you're not able to impart that knowledge onto the students if you're not able to make it engaging and accessible and relatable and fun if you can't control behavior if you can't build a rapport with your students if they don't like you if you don't know how to communicate and talk to them on their level they're not going to they're not going to learn teaching is a real skill and that's what people don't understand there's a real way to get students to listen to you and to want to learn from you and just having a a fancy degree from a fancy place is is not enough and i think people just don't understand that 
And if there was something that you could change in the profession based on your experience, what would you change? Um, the workload. I mean, I think, oh, God, actually, God, there's so much. Um, it all comes down to, and I know I talk about this so much, um, but I think it all essentially comes down to funding, doesn't it? To budget cuts and the fact that it all links to if we had more money, if we were investing more money into schools, into education, we'd be able to hire more teachers. If we were able to hire more teachers, we would have smaller class sizes, which would mean we'd be able to give more individual attention to students, which would help them pastorally, but also it means that the mark load and the workload would be a lot less. So there'd be teachers would be able to have more of a work-life balance. They'd be able to plan their lessons better. They'd be able to mark the work better. And so overall, if we just invested more money into the profession, if we, yeah, if we stopped taking money from schools and put money into them instead, I think that, would make a massive difference. But what's happening right now is we're taking money away from schools. We're ending up with bigger class sizes. We've got 35 kids in a class. We can't mark their work. We, we're just about planning their lessons. You can't, the students are are not getting the attention and the help and the support that they need. They're slipping through the net. Um, we don't have enough resources. We can't do any of the fun stuff. We can't do the trips that we want to do and all that extra, extra things because we don't have the time, the energy and the money to do so. And so it's all a bit of a shambles because, and it all comes down to money. And, you know, uh, it's also where that money is obviously resourced because, you know, some would argue that we, you know, the education sector does get a lot of money, but it's about where that funding is going. Um, you mentioned marking and the burden of marking. It, it made me laugh because, I, and, you know, for the listeners who are listening in today, um, very, very humorous stories throughout uh, throughout the book. Uh, the marking and pretending to write comments in for students, Mehri. Like, seriously, you did that? I can't be the only one who did that. There's got to be someone out there who did something. <laughs> that makes me sound like such a bad teacher. And it was, it was a terrible thing to do. But when you're like at the threat of being action planned again and being in trouble constantly because your marking's not be, like not getting done on time, then sometimes you've got to take drastic measures. And yeah, I did. I, I marked, we had to do, we had to for this marking scrutiny, we had to mark the work and then we had to show in a different color pen that students were responding to our marking. And I just didn't bloody have time. So then I just marked the work <laughs> and then I wrote comments back to myself in different hands. <laughs> and you know, this is, I'm laughing, but on a serious on a serious note, this is a problem we have in the profession that, you know, senior leaders need to take, you know, real, real serious, um, you know, notice of this, that when you've got an unreasonable marking policy and you're constantly asking for written feedback, things like this are going to happen. You know, mm -hmm. people are going to go to these drastic measures and people have gone through these drastic measures. I know I've seen schools that I've worked in, uh, not the one that I'm in right now, but schools I've worked in previously. I have seen teachers do all sorts. And I'm, I, you know, I'm sitting here when there's an expose that goes out in the media. I'm sitting here thinking, well, actually, uh, you know, 
we all know how stressful and what kind of situation you must have been in to take that action and you know you just have to be a bit empathetic sometimes and a bit compassionate and just look at your systems and your policies and think about realistically is this good for the well-being of my staff because if it's not good for the well-being and if it's not you know if it's not good for your children as in it doesn't help them move forward or progress Mm. in any way then why is that policy implemented Mm. in the first place Mm. I, i just don't get it to be quite honest now Mehreen, I've had loads of messages coming in throughout the whole show. If you've just joined us, we've been talking to Mehreen Beg, who's been talking about um, her career, her life, to, her career today. Um, she's also been talking about her book, which is humorous, very, very funny. She's talked about uh, all sorts of things, you know, including what it's like to be um, from a black and ethnic minority uh, background. Um, and she mentions in the book that, you know, we work really hard for our careers to make our parents happy. And, you know, it's important for us to be represented uh, and to have the same level of equity Um, and some of the things that did make me laugh is um, when you were talking about your training on how to spot a Muslim and (laughs) you were talking about how you know there were these specific things that you know people have traits you know when you're a Muslim you know people shout Allahu Akbar he may have a beard he may wear a religious symbol like a crescent and you sat there thinking well you've just described my dad and I think I think that kind of highlighted in a humorous way but with serious context that there are so many prejudices not just towards Muslims but just generally to different groups of people we all do it including us There are so many ingrained prejudices that we have within our education system that I think we just need to just, you know, let it all go. Yeah, completely. I mean, um, again, I think without specifically talking about um, our how to spot a terrorist training, um, but even when it comes to, you know, you look at um, the way different students of different race um the way i mean there's all sorts of research and statistics showing um attitudes towards black students particularly black uh boys um i mean race religion gender i i am recording a new podcast currently and i've got baroness wasi um saida wasi who talks about her (laughs) uh, school time and she it's a it's really interesting she says you know she's i think she says she's got five they're five sisters and they're all really 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 bright they're really good at school but the school just wouldn't push them because they knew well they thought that as young Asian girls they just wouldn't really care about their education they wouldn't really go on to do anything anyway there was no investment so there are various um, ways that different yeah groups based on all sorts of prejudices are treated um you know whether it's subconsciously or consciously treated differently in the classroom and it's a big issue but you know we've really got to think about how we tackle that and initiatives like prevent were not necessarily helpful so and again I think the only way any of these things can be tackled you need to you need to actually get teachers on board to make these decisions when you've got trainings being delivered and you've got decisions being made by people who aren't teachers who don't actually know about young people who don't know what's happening in schools there's no wonder that they're not always beneficial or helpful and um what have you learned since changing careers then because obviously you like you said uh, and to be quite honest is quite a fair comment because I felt like that as well when I left the profession for a bit you always had one foot in and that's because there's that teacher guilt and that teacher love towards mm-hmm. the profession as well mm-hmm. what have you learned since changing careers 
uh, where have I learned? How cheesy can I make this? But it's the truth. I, I think the I think the biggest oh I actually agree with what someone just wrote you said guilt and love and that is exactly that's a really really lovely way to summarize it, it is teacher guilt and teacher love um I think one thing I've realized is that um god how do I make this not sound cringe I think one thing I've realized is it's that okay Mary cringe away <laughs> where teachers talk radio <laughs> Real happiness doesn't come from, you know, money or from fame or from any of that stuff. I really thought that when I left teaching, I'd be so happy and on top of the world because I'd be doing all this cool stuff. And, you know, like I said, there are definitely elements of like this, my new job being really great. But when I think about when I was happiest, it's it was when I was teaching and it's because real happiness I've realized comes from helping people and making a difference to people's lives. Definitely. And that that's what truly kind of makes you feel, feel satisfied and content and fulfilled. Um, so my current mission in life is to see how I can combine my new profession with all those great bits of teaching. I don't think I want to go back in a, never say never, but I don't think I want to go back in a traditional school setting just because I think the British education system is just not great right now. Um, but it's how I can combine kind of those great bits of teaching with what I'm doing right now. Maybe start my own school. Maybe I don't know. Ooh, that I don't sounds know. good. Me and my te my teacher friends talk about all that all the time. Yeah, <laughs> starting our own school. Yeah, I think it has to be something like that, um, <laughs> which I'm definitely wor working towards because that is yeah, that's what truly makes you happy. Okay, do let us know if you have a job then, Mehreen. <laughs> okay, just to finish off, because you have spent a lot of time with us and we're really appreciative uh, for you coming on today. Um, obviously, you're a podcaster. Um, Secret Life of Teachers was absolutely fantastic. I absolutely loved it. So uh, based on our session today, Miss Beg, oh. feedback. <laughs> um, I think, shall, okay, shall I be completely honest? Yeah, go for I, it. <laughs> I get really nervous when I'm hosting a podcast. Um, it's it's really scary sort of asking the right questions and making sure the conversation flows. And I think that your energy is absolutely beautiful. Like you can feel it buzzing <laughs> down the line. You can actually feel your excitement and it makes the whole conversation. It uplifts the whole conversation. So it's a grade nine from me, Sylvia. Oh, thank you so much, Maureen. <laughs> this is why I invited you on the show. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Uh, in fact, I'd love for you to come back again and make a regular appearance if you're able to. Um, I, you know, like I told you earlier, I have had COVID this week. So just having the um, having you come on, uh, you've brightened up my day. And, oh, I hope uh, you get better. You need to lots uh, of vitamin C and D and zinc yeah, and all that other definitely. good stuff. Definitely. Um, and uh, yeah, definitely will do. And uh, loads of people have messaged in saying that it's been a great show and they love the energy. Uh, they're really happy that you're here today. So thank you. Um, and I guess I'll see you soon. <laughs> oh, are you just cut out right at the end? What? Oh, oh no, what did you say? <laughs> this is this is live radio. I just said thank you very much for coming onto the studio and I guess I'll see you again soon. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Take care. 
Okay, right. And that was um, a really good session this morning. I, I feel really bright. Um, and um, we've got Andrea Cox coming up next to discuss careers. So uh, we're just going to head over to the news first and then we'll bring Andrea in. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Colin's Big Cat. To find out more, Follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. Whatever learning looks like this year, bring lessons to life with Nearpod. An exciting new addition to the Renaissance family, Nearpod offers real-time insights into student understanding through interactive lessons and videos, gamification and activities, all in a single, easy-to-use platform. To help kickstart the new year, we're offering all primary and secondary schools in the UK and Ireland full, free access to Nearpod for the whole spring term. So, no matter what 2022 brings, Nearpod makes switching between in-class and remote teaching simple. Visit www.renlearn.co.uk forward slash Nearpod and sign up for your free trial today. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. A report in The Independent makes it clear that Ofqual's chief regulator believes that changes to the 2022 examinations will not advantage more able pupils. As a result of the disruption caused by the pandemic, pupils in England and those students sitting GCSE from English exam boards will be offered a choice of topics in some GCSE exams. In a speech to the Sixth Form Colleges Association conference earlier in January, Chief Regulator Joe Saxton said the release of advanced information on the kinds of topics pupils will see in their exams would not advantage higher ability pupils. 
This advance information is due on February the 7th and is being released to help students focus their revision to answer questions carrying more marks. It will not be provided for simpler one or two mark questions. In a statement, Ms Saxton said that she hoped that the advance information will mean students who suffered the most disruption or those who are less able may gain confidence to tackle elements of the paper that they might not previously had the confidence to try. In response to the comments, Jeff Barton, General Secretary of ASCO, said, Many school leaders will have legitimate concerns about how the advance information about exam content has been put together and how helpful it is likely to be to their students. Radio 1 presenter Vic Hope has returned to a former school in Newcastle to open its new wellbeing centre. In a report on the ITV News website, it is described how Ms Hope opened a centre at Dame Allen's in Fenham by stating, it's been important to me in my work to raise awareness, destigmatize, and signpost resources dedicated to nurturing the psychological and emotional well-being of our young people. And I am so proud that the Dame Allens is clearly doing this work so well too. Ms Hope is a human rights activist and Amnesty International ambassador, and has spoken candidly about mental health in the past. The Snug at Dame Allens offers counseling, psychotherapy, and special educational needs support and provides a dedicated place where students feel safe, heard and understood. With mental health and well-being now a key focus for many schools, Ms Hope praised the efforts made by schools to support pupils in this way. The news website Monitor reports on lessons the continent of Africa can learn about investing in education. It states that the universal lesson is that countries can no longer ignore the unprecedented learning crisis facing the continent. The pandemic has revealed what the article describes as alarming inequalities in accessing inclusive and quality education. The issue was discussed by leaders at the Global Education Summit, co-hosted by Kenya and the UK in London last week. The continent is facing some harsh realities and the summit launched a drive to increase national budget allocations for education, with greater emphasis on improving learning outcomes. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week we're going to take a look at teaching online. Marmite comes to mind when I think about teaching online. I actually like it, but it's my job and I'm surrounded by gadgets to assist me. A lot of teachers hate it. If you think about it, for 90% of the current population of teachers, delivering a lesson online is something they've not even been trained in. They signed up to be in the classroom with a group of pupils. I'm not going to go into the depths of the delivery platform. That's normally a choice that's already made for you by technology leaders in schools. I'm going to give you a couple of free tools that work in a browser, so don't need installing and can be used for engagements in the classroom and easily adapted to use online. First up, we all love Kahoot. Did you know you can set a Kahoot to be self-paced rather than live? Simply click the assign button and you have an instant self-paced quiz for a homework, a starter or a progress check. If you need to take it online, share the link and off you go. If you use lots of YouTube clips and websites, check out Wakelet. Share collections of links in a meaningful way for free. My favourite use for this is to group my YouTube clips for topics. Not only are they played back with less distractions, but I can share a group of links for revision or to flip a lesson. Again, if I have to teach online, one link can lead to many. Just remember to check your school's policy on using websites such as YouTube for online teaching. If you have access to devices in the classroom, why not try Mentimeter? Create interactive presentations, take votes or build word clouds from participants' answers to improve engagement, assess learning and inspire discussion. Or, if you love whiteboard, 
whiteboards, try whiteboard.fi. As a teacher, you can see all your class's whiteboards and answers, know who's interacting and who's not. You can even show a QR code for ease of joining. I could go on and on. The idea is to test these things out when you're with your class and there's no pressure. Then, should you need to teach online, you'll feel more comfortable, there'll be fewer issues, and most importantly, you'll see if pupils are engaging. I hope you consider bringing a bit of tech into your classroom. As always, please test things work in your setting before you use them. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Right, welcome back. Um, Andrea is an Oxbridge grad, a secondary teacher turned university careers educator, currently working at King's College. Andrea specialises in careers with impact, helping students and researchers explore careers with social and environmental benefits. She also chairs the Careers Education for Social Justice Community of Interest across the University of London Career Services. Andrea and I used to work together. And if you're yeah. listening back to the podcast, we have had various situations that we've been in together that we have overcome. How are you, Andrea? <laughs> I'm super well, Sophia. Yeah, absolutely. This is just like a throwback to teaching, isn't it? Where just <laughs> everything happens and you have to work on your feet. So super happy to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Andrea, can you explain your role to us? What's your background history um, of your own career and what are you working on right now? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Sophia. Um, so, so right now, as you said um, in the intro, I'm a, a careers advisor and I've been working for the last four or five years in London universities, currently working at King's College. And um, <clears throat> really, you know, what my job is focused around is helping, helping students, helping researchers to really develop confidence in themselves and to navigate the job market. Um, and to find to you know to find a pathway for themselves that was a really good fit with their with their value and their skill set and and really my job comes down to about three different things so the first is doing is personal guidance so like one-on-one chats with students um, to you know to help them figure out their way forward Um, the second bit is like doing lectures and workshops uh, to help build skills around careers so it might be things like Uh, networking um, which obviously is a thing that is very helpful in life but we don't often get taught how to do Um, negotiating your salary figuring out your purpose those kinds of those kinds of things like kind of personal development stuff and then thirdly it's around um, actually I didn't realize this when I went into the profession but it's a lot around negotiating with lecturers and the university to put careers more in the curriculum to try and campaign for why it is important for students and that students want it. Um, So it's actually quite a lot of, yeah, almost a bit like salesy, I'd say. Um, I didn't realize that at the beginning. Um, And so some, a couple of things I'm working on at the moment, um, I'm doing a lot around, as you said, careers with impact. So trying to help students who wanna contribute to social environmental justice causes, like how can they do that while still you know, earning a living, um, also, you know, having job security, how can you make a path for yourself in that way, um, if that's something you care about. And also, I'm, I'm doing quite a lot of um, research with lecturers around this principle of curiosity. Um, so how do we get curious about things in our lives? And can you get curious about your, your career as well? Um, so, so yeah, that's me at the moment. Um, and as you said, Sobia, we, we, yeah, we met, well, 
2009, I started teaching straight out of uni and that's where we met and, and worked at Leighton Comprehensive together. Um, so yeah, quite a few years ago now. Um, and I, yeah, that was my first job out of uni and I really, really, <clears throat> I really loved teaching. I did it because I, I did it a lot at uni um, uh, and I, I felt like I was good at it and it was something I could do to, to kind of contribute. Um, I, I myself came from a really privileged background and priv really privileged uh, kind of upbringing. And I think going to Oxbridge really showed me that. And I, I kind of, yeah, I felt like I wanted to, yeah, I, I guess I didn't want to go and teach in like a yeah, private school. I wanted to try and um, kind of use the privileges I had for, for good in some way. And I, so I started teaching, but I found it quite, um, I love the teaching, but I found it quite isolating sometimes. I found it quite a lot of time alone in a funny way. And I, yeah, I really, at that young stage in my life, I really felt like I needed a bit more kind of support in my career. And so after three years, I, I moved into the tech industry, like in startups and was then, um, yeah, working a really small team, like 20, 30 people, like a bit of a family. And I really needed that actually at that stage in my life, like that kind of support around me. But it was always calling me back, Sobia. It was always, I was always just really thinking, how, how do I help students to like dream and aspire and to, yeah, to, to think beyond their immediate environment. Um, and so I looked to get back into to careers, well, to get back into schools. Um, and found that careers advice in school is really badly paid, to be honest. It's like, you know, 25K. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go back into universities, train up as a careers advisor. And then hopefully at some point in the future, I'm going to be coming back to, to, to working in schools. Because I think that's really where like the impact, the careers impact happens is actually when you're at school. So um, yeah, that's me. So that, you know, that's fascinating, the fact that you, you actually changed direction and it's led you uh, into the area that you're in now. What was career guidance like for you when you were at school? Because you've mentioned before that obviously you were, you went to um, Oxbridge uh, and you had yeah. a different kind of academic career uh, compared to me, for example, <clears throat> who went to state mm. schools. Yeah. Um, and so did you get a lot of guidance academically and about careers or was it just academic yeah. focused what was that like yeah it's really interesting because I think you're absolutely right there's quite there was quite a difference for me having gone to a private school like I there was quite a lot of difference in terms of academic focus but actually so I'll talk about that in a sec but the actual careers was um really really patchy uh so we did have some stuff we had um when I was like 14, 15, we did this careers quiz that I bet loads of people will remember doing at school. And I thought it was actually really fun answering all these questions about yourself. And then, you know, you got these results and some of them, some of them were pretty accurate and some of them were quite weird. Like my first one was um, a betting shop manager, uh, which was, um, yeah, I'm not sure why I got that particularly, but um, maybe entrepreneurial, uh, maybe a bit of a risk taker or something. Um, then the second one was teacher and the third one was like a dog grooming, uh, dog grooming parlor owner or something. So it was like kind of interesting what came back. But the thing was that was missing, I think, was like someone to talk to about those 
answers like did they resonate what are the patterns that's I think where you take the career stuff a step further which is I guess what I do um so we had that and we did like these tests um psychometric tests which again was supposed to show you a bit about what you did but we didn't really have guidance and we didn't really have many people we had people coming in to talk about their jobs but I guess I didn't feel particularly inspired by anybody. I can't really, you know. Um, so, so I think where the difference was in the private system, I got so much help getting into uni, you know. So listening to Mehreen, you know, she was talking a lot about, um, yeah, privilege, I suppose, and, and opportunities put your way. I got so many. I got coaching to get into Oxbridge, you know. I got um, extra reading and support classes. It's just that the students that I was teaching um, at Lamas, you know, absolutely didn't get any of that kind of stuff, you know, so there was a lot of add on. And, um, you know, I, I really do think my kind of my getting into Oxbridge was, yeah, circumstantial is not, you know, it's not just about being smart enough. Actually, a lot of opportunities came my way to to grasp that opportunity, if it, as you if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's important to have mm. both sets of uh, foundational training because I, I remember, yeah. um, you know, after working at the same school as you, I left as well and I ended up working uh, as a supply teacher. And whilst I was doing supply, I was working in different kinds of schools. So I've worked in private schools, grammar schools and, and things like that. And um, a, a lot of the information that they mm. were getting was different. Um, and I, I found it interesting because a lot of students, if you know, if I was talking to year eights, in one private school for example they knew straight away they wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever it was what their, their yeah. aspirations were and I, I compared that to my kids in the state school and I was like my kids didn't have a clue and I look back to my own my own um career journey uh, and educational journey and I, I remember my career guidance in school was really really abysmal because mm. um we didn't have psychometric testing or anything like that we just literally had half an hour with a careers advisor uh, and it was all just about options and pathways into mm. you know uh, a levels and juice uh, and universities but um when I went to sixth form college it was a very similar thing there wasn't that much guidance and I, I just do think that you know this is an issue because uh, mm. you know some schools have progressed and they are now producing fantastic careers guidance and there's some schools that still haven't what is um what are your thoughts on careers education in state schools yeah so i think like you said i think the overall picture is that it is getting better but it is extremely variable you know, and it's extremely unequal, um, which is just really not fair, um, actually, um, and, and, can and can perpetuate some social inequalities. So I think the, the kind of the picture of it getting better is based on the fact that um, uh, there is now, I suppose, a system by which schools are supposed to be delivering more and better quality careers guidance, which when we were, well, when I was, we were teaching in, in Lamas, that just, that really wasn't there. Um, so a lot of your listeners will probably know about the, the Gatsby benchmarks, which is uh, based on some research that was done in 2014 by a guy called John Holman. Uh, he basically was tasked by the government, go and look internationally what's happening, where is there good career guidance and education happening? Let's learn from people kind of abroad. 
And he came back with eight benchmarks of what, what is proven to be six, uh, good in terms of boosting careers, uh, the quality of careers guidance and careers education. So, you know, there's stuff like more workplace experiences, more interactions with employers, personal guidance, um, you know, labor market information, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so since in 2016, when this kind of started the Gatsby benchmarks, on average schools were getting two out of eight of the benchmarks. And then by 2019 to 20, it was four out of eight. And so the kind of the, the trajectory is going up. We don't have the data yet for kind of 2021. 20, um, and obviously that'll be affected by the pandemic, but overall, it's going upwards. However, talking to like my teacher friends um, and colleagues, it's it just changes so much, just like you were saying, Sophia, from school to school. So my friend um, at work, she used to work in Sheffield, and she said there there was like you know a school in quite a disadvantaged area that invested in careers so much. They had one full time careers leader and two part time people working on careers. Like that was their mission was to get students excited about their learning, how it related to the outside world. And they, like the whole school was on board with it. Whereas when she's a governor now, um, you know, the school is basically not, doesn't know what to do with the money, um, doesn't have very much money dedicated to careers, is doing the Gatsby benchmarks, but in a kind of quite half-hearted way. So that shows you, you can have benchmarks, but you kind of need the vision and the whole school emphasis on careers, I think, to make it that really transformational, um, yeah, that transformational kind of experience. And so obviously we know that it's really important to have careers guidance because of the impact uh, that it has on things like, you know, making sure that children well, students do have the best opportunities in life that they possibly mm. can have. Because I remember I wasn't given proper careers guidance. And I remember even after I left university, I wasn't supported very well either because I was the first graduate in my family. So I was mm. navigating the education system because neither of my parents knew anything about education. And so for someone like me, and I have mm. students who are like me as well, it's a very difficult place to be in. And, you know, even though we have got career support and guidance within schools I sometimes feel that there is a, a you know there's a gap between schools colleges and universities and the workplace which is causing issues mm. for so many students and we're, we're training up so many graduates and so many people are not going into the industries that they wanted to or they're, they're actually not being able to um, get in because of the grades that are required or they've just decided that they've worked really hard for something i.e they've trained up to be a lawyer and after a few years they've just left because it's not what they expected so exactly what so obviously it, you know career guidance is important because of that because we are we are wasting a lot of money uh, uh, as a as a country and as an education system generally uh, are we missing a link between schools colleges and universities yeah, I mean, just to say on the kind of the career guidance bit, I think you put it really, really perfectly. But I think um, it's 
there is just so much choice in the world like the world is amazing but there's so much choice and it's it's kind of can be really overwhelming at any age even you know as adults it's overwhelming all the different things we can do but we it is so important that there's there's consistent people to talk to I think who are knowledgeable and can also address some of the the kind of social inequalities that you were talking about um because sometimes people miss out on something which is would be perfect for them just because they just you know haven't had the access to the information so I totally agree with you um I think that um in terms of the kind of the links between schools and universities and businesses basically the universities like I said before are the ones with the money you know they pay careers advisors much better they have all these link they have teams working with employers to get them in on campus to give presentations um, to speak to students schools don't have those that budget you know it's very difficult obviously to decide where you put your budget um, and I think we could do a lot more in terms of sharing our resources essentially obviously universities want schools to send students to university and normally the interaction between them is all about marketing that you know like come and have a taste today at a university which is you know is is useful but why can't we be having um schools sending groups of students to come to our careers fairs that we're putting on you know to come to some of our big flagship events all the employers are there anyway so why can't schools just kind of get on the back of that and send a groups of students to come in and do that i think and also you know get schools make links to employers as well which is obviously a very time consuming thing to do when you uh, when you're working as a careers lead in a school. And I think there's also something else that um, could be really useful to do between universities and schools, which might be some kind of form of mentoring where you get like first year undergraduates to perhaps mentor or talk to students, maybe before they get to kind of like bef even before GCSE level to talk to them about to talk to them about their ideas and their dreams it doesn't have to be like giving guidance, but just getting them to talk to somebody who's relatable, possibly from similar background to them, and who can, and where the undergraduate can understand the pressures of being a student at school. Um, there could be stuff that we could do, like more innovative stuff we could do like that, I think, as well. Yeah, I mean, there's loads of um, access and widening participation groups that universities are doing so it's all fantastic yeah. work that you guys are doing and I do know that loads of schools are taking part uh, in those sessions uh, and it's really important to engage them right from a young age so like you said from year eight year nine just to make sure that they're aware yeah. of these are the kind of things that are, are needed in their careers and, and things like that and also it's always good to have representation and role models coming in as well because what I started doing in my department is I got some um some you know representative people from different parts of industry tech and um business to come in and obviously related it to the gatsby benchmark um criteria to make sure that we were yeah. actually delivering and giving a wealth of information of careers and guidance as we're delivering our curriculum and um 
Obviously, there's new uh, national careers uh, information that's come out mm -hmm. this week, um, and it's all about apprenticeships, vocational te technical qualifications, traineeships, T-levels, higher technical qualifications, A-levels, HE, internships, school leave, and Kickstarter. There's so much out there right now. I think it's the. I think maybe the best thing to do is to have a structured careers guidance and strategy within schools to ensure that you know you're you're meeting all the criteria for the Gatsby benchmarks um what's it like in other countries is it a similar picture or is it different what are we doing that is um that different to other countries because when you look around the world you know claims of Denmark you know people living in Denmark are living a nice relaxing easy lifestyle much happier in their lives what are they doing that we're not yeah you're it's really interesting to like read some of the reports of how it's done differently around the world um and you're absolutely right like finland is the leader in careers education um around the world so they they basically have a really structured program which is like you mentioned is really consistent from school to school so in finland um, you know, the quality of your education varies very little in terms of your location, unlike here, right? Um, and so every Finnish school will have work experience from age 13 to 16. So every single year you'll be doing different kind of work experience. And the culture is very different um, compared to here. So the employers are very apparently very welcoming of students coming in. Um, and wanting to do work experience and wanting to get a taster, which is anybody who's ever tried to organize work experience in schools will be able to say it's actually really, really different um, when you're, uh, you know, trying to get students into companies like there's a lot of admin in the UK to do that. So, so it's kind of like everybody is on board, uh, schools, universities, employers. And one other thing I, I think um, is is really, really interesting in terms of the terms of what they're doing in Ireland is, I don't know if you've heard of this, but they have something called the transition year. Um, and the transition year in Ireland is between your junior certificate, which is like a GCSE and then further higher certificate. And you basically, it's optional, but 75% of students do it. You take a year out and you focus in that year basically on kind of non-academic things. So like life skills, you've got um, like driving, cooking, um, sports, uh, voluntary work, you do work experience. You kind of try to get a flavor of more like the world outside of school. And um, although it, it varies quite a lot from school to school, the quality of the program, I just think that's such a, that's such a, that's a really interesting idea um, because I think a lot of the students that I work with and when I worked in schools would often say, there's just not really time to think about all of this stuff. Um, and obviously, like you were saying, your experience over at school, you, you just had this like, one guidance interview and it, it becomes all about pathways, doesn't it? It becomes about options. It doesn't necessarily have time to go into the core of like who you are, what, what, what makes you tick? Why are you what are you interested about in the world? Like that stuff takes time to develop. And some people get it from their families, but a lot of us don't get that necessarily in our families. And it takes time to develop that, but you can't do it in a half an hour guidance conversation. So I really love this idea of transition year. Um, 
to explore yourself a bit yeah um yeah I just think it's really great I mean it's interesting because earlier you were talking about the psychometric testing uh, and things like that mm. the quizzes that we take and it's really interesting because obviously when you go into the corporate sector for example you do have these psychometric testing uh, and and you know minor mm -hmm. tests that you have to take place well they're not minor they're actually a way of filtering people out uh, which is fine fair enough but there has been some claims that the Myers Briggs for example, yeah. is just a really bad way of calculating or trying to work out what you're good at. And I'm just yeah. wondering, because uh, I sit here, because I think that it's what you were saying earlier, that's, in fact, it's what Maureen was saying earlier, that someone could mm. look really fantastic on paper, but they're not necessarily going to be able to manage a classroom behaviour and things mm. like that. And it's the same, I feel, with these tests as well, that you could really perform excellently on mm. these psychometric tests and things like that but when you actually perform on the job it's completely different and I'm saying that as someone who um and this isn't anything against Oxbridge graduates because mm. you know you're my friend but I've seen people from Oxbridge who you know they are academically really, really smart and they've not been able to perform in the role that they're given and that includes that senior leadership level so mm. I'm kind of like, uh, you know, uh, and when I worked with you, you were completely different. I mean, I <laughs> we got along with each other and I just thought that, you know, yeah. I, I couldn't tell the difference at all. But there's some people who really struggle to um, mm. to have those social skills and, and communication skills and, and everything that you need to get along with people in the workplace uh, and actually technical skills to some extent as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I just on that point, Sobia, um, about sometimes people getting into jobs that they're not really necessarily are not really a great fit for them. I think that's why like careers, conversations, careers work thing and, and getting into lots of conversations with, with, with adults who know you and who can reflect back some of your strengths, some of the things that they see in you are really important because a lot of people from all backgrounds get into these jobs because it's their families who have a certain expectation, it's prestige often wanting to do the same as what their peers do. And actually they haven't been able to kind of sit down and, and, and talk really honestly about their desires and their fears. Um, and so they end up in these things that aren't really a good fit for them, but they've done it for, for reason. They didn't really know why they were making that decision. They hadn't really uncovered that decision, why they made it, the motivation. And I think, you know, another strand of this is that there's research that was done 2020, which showed that um, across 41 different countries, about 50% of boys and girls only know 10 occupations, you know? So, so there's another thing there that like, the, the types of vision that a lot of students have for what they can do, it's like teacher, uh, nurse, uh, lawyer, engineer, you know, like there's quite narrow vision for a lot of students. So that's why I think, um, you know, like the whole school approach to to broadening uh, broadening ideas and aspirations is like super super important, including in the curriculum um, as well as outside of it.
Yeah, because obviously uh, it's a big career shift from when I was at school and careers guidance was given because obviously, like you said, it was very traditional in terms of careers. But when we're looking at industry right now, there's a completely mm. different focus. I mean, there's so many different careers out there that people are spoiled for choice now, you know, and you, I, I'm not even sure if there is such a thing as a traditional career pathway mm-hmm. now where you where, where anything says that you have to stick to one job only. I mean, I've seen people transition out of careers some people end up having two or three different types of careers mm-hmm. I, I think it's a, a very big big system uh, well it's actually something we need to think about as an education system as well um, for becoming more flexible within our system as well to you know increase our, our teachers and our recruitment drives uh, and retention because I do totally. think that because I do mm. think that you know we are working in a gig free economy and you know mm. it is a free market, and I just think that we are we are looking at a different working pattern. And mm. whilst whilst I agree that stability is great, um, because financially it's important to be secure and everything, but some of the organisations and companies and, and industries that you go into a lot of people are resenting the way that they're being treated or they're, they're, they're not working like their parents used to work. Conflict in society right now between mm. what we're taught at school uh, in terms of careers and what we actually end up with. And, I, you know, that's not dismissing the idea of having a long-term career because obviously loads of people are doing fantastic in their careers and they've chosen that route. I just think that there are different opportunities for people now. Absolutely. And and that's a real, yeah, that's a real excitement, I think, um, but also can be a bit of a risk if you as a young person end up in a kind of gig economy, zero hours contract without any, uh, you know, security um, or holiday pay and stuff like that. Um, I think that's, you're absolutely right. I mean, in the UK, there's so much flexibility in the job market compared to like Germany, uh, compared to um, some of the Scandinavian countries where you really need to be trained in a certain thing. Um, so almost we need to shift the focus away from options and pathways focused careers education and be teaching more the skills of agility, and like keeping on learning new skills, following your nose, networking, that kind of stuff. Um, it's, it's important to be aware of the different options, but almost I think those skills um, and, and also learning how to be self-employed, for example, like the concrete skills of how to do that, how to have a side hustle, you know, like you do this incredible, um, you know, radio show on top of your other work. How do you manage your time? How do you get connected to all the people you invite on your podcast? You know, like those are things that can be taught actually um, and can make the world really, really exciting. Um, and you've I just think. mentioned something else that's important, like networking, because one of the problems mm, that I had, huge. I mean, I've, I've mentioned this before in different podcasts that I've done, that one of the problems that I did have as a child is that networking, like I, for me, you know, I saw some of my friends deliberately you know become friends with other people and Mm. I wasn't that kind of person and so for me when I was uh, I didn't even know what networking was because nobody had explained it to me like teachers definitely hadn't explained it it's like we were trying to learn everything for the first time and so when I got to university it was just genuinely friendship for me like when I even now at work when I when I socialize with people I mean I've basically got in contact with you because I knew you yeah yeah (laughs) And, and we had a we had a good relationship at school and so I trusted you to deliver whatever you know 
you know taking part in my show and for me it's kind of like when i when i do that with people blindly sometimes because obviously i'm a radio host i had network with all sorts of people you do get some people who blatantly flat out uh, you know refuse to talk to you and i do think a bit of status comes into this and mm. that is why careers is an issue for me because i think children from state schools uh, mm. and somebody mentioned it before that maybe we don't have the right connections in order to get the opportunities that we need and i think that is kind of that's kind of sad because there are loads of people that i've worked with there's loads of people that i i grew up with who are phenomenal you know in their careers they're phenomenal people great personalities but for some reason they're just stuck or they've not managed to find the opportunities that they wanted out of life yeah absolutely and I agree with you it's it's there's a real sadness in that because I, I think it can also people can take that on themselves a lot like there's something wrong with me I haven't you know achieved as much as other people or whatever but actually when when success does happen it often happens through as you say like connections to other people getting like marine talked about getting that kind of random opportunity after putting something on bbc and then then contacting her and and pursuing her as it were like it takes a lot of people to make that kind of success and so it is really tragic if if that's not explored at a younger age and explored how do you feel about networking like what are the barriers there what would you need to help you to do it um, how can you do it in a way that's authentic to you, you know, um, and how and schools, I guess, and, and this is maybe also where universities can help and other schools who do it well, like creating opportunities to practice, because if you're not someone, you know, some people from a very like middle class background going to be practicing meeting high status individuals all the time, they're going to have that like patter down and they're going to have that self-confidence and polish and polish does not equal, you know, polish is not value polish is just this kind of like learned socially acceptable behavior isn't it but yeah. it's something that we yeah it's that's why I think like careers within education is just like a really political and like socially important activity because it's not about pathways it's actually about confidence and knowing yourself and moving yeah. in the world with like grace I suppose not grace like moving in the world with with authenticity yeah and I think that's the key word, authenticity, because obviously mm. when you meet people, you want you want to be able to meet them, uh, you know, as they meet yeah. you. And okay. sometimes in the real world, that doesn't happen. Um, there's one other thing that I wanted to ask you. This idea of having purpose. Now, obviously, we're all on social mm. media. We're all watching um, the internet. We're all on the internet regularly, what's being posted. Uh, and in fact, the internet, I think, has consumed uh, everyone and it's taken over people people's lives um, a lot and so we've got loads of bloggers out there and loads of people who genuinely care about education but there are also some people who blog for the sake of disrupting things unnecessary unnecessarily so one of the things that I've always had an issue with and I'm pretty sure that other people have an issue with as well is this idea of having a life purpose Mm. Now, we all have a life purpose. We all know things that we enjoy and we don't enjoy. Most of us, some of us don't. And some of us don't mm. even realise until later on in our lives what we enjoy mm. and what we don't enjoy. But there are lots of bloggers out there who are 
in my opinion, causing detrimental effects on our young people because mm. they're saying things like, which I would love to do, by the way, and some people have gone on to be successful, so it is possible for it to happen. But they're saying, you know, you might as well become a, you know, a travel blogger or you might as well do this kind of work or this kind of work where you're sitting on a beach and and typing away and whilst that's all fantastic and we all love the idea of that at the end of the day financial stability is also important I mean the whole reason why people go into education is to open up doors and opportunities for them and part of that is being an adult and paying wages and bills I mean Mm. what what are your thoughts about all of this yeah, super, super interesting. I I think that um, that basically, if if you've got people peddling this kind of like, ped- basically, social media opens up all of these different worlds. It's quite democratized. You can see pathways for yourself, perhaps that weren't accessible before. Kind of social media in the same kind of way. So I think that's really exciting, and I think it's great. You know, to aspire to two different things and of course if you see travel blogger okay cool interesting idea but the point is that you then need to to kind of have a safe space where you can explore that with someone and you can explore that what does that reality actually look like the problem is is when um yeah I guess people put forward this kind of vision of okay you can start your own company I don't know, as a yoga teacher, you're going to make, you know, hundreds of thousand pounds within the first kind of month. When they pedal like big distortions, that is a problem. But that is the nature of the internet, isn't it? So I think that's yeah, the I mean, of, you know, I like mean, we've do got you know what almost... it... Yeah, go on. I was just going to say, sorry to interrupt you, Andrea. I That's was okay. just going to say, it reminds me of the old, you know, I want to be a footballer, which there's nothing mm. wrong with. Nothing mm. wrong with because there's so many successful people who've gone on to play sports and become fantastic. But there's, <clears throat> there's, you know, they, you know, they're really talented people. There's very slim chances of everyone going down yeah. that route, and so we need totally. to be more you know we need to be more realistic about what careers our children can go into um i remember when i was at university there was a friend with me who was studying for computer science and you know unfortunately he just wasn't good at it and i you know i heard later that he actually always wanted to do medicine but he couldn't get into medicine and then went in the, into dentistry instead and i found it fascinating that he studied for a very long time and ended up going into dentistry you know because somebody's committed they want to achieve Mm. a dream go for it I don't you know don't have any problems with that but he had the opportunity because he came from a middle class family a wealthy Mm -hmm. family but state school children don't have those opportunities. In fact, going through the education system the first time is is an issue for some of us because I, I look back and I remember when I was working in a grammar school uh, and private school, I didn't know that you could reset exams at A-levels, for example, because mm. had I known mm. that, I probably might have gone for my resets for A-levels, but I was in a normal sixth form. I wasn't in... Um, I wasn't in you know a a, a grammar school or a private school that informed me that we could have those options so I do think that there are certain unfair advantages that other Mm. children are afforded that not everyone gets the opportunity for I totally I totally agree with you Sobia and um and that and in our system 
you know, that can make a really big difference, which is so kind of grounded on exams and stuff like that can make a really big difference in terms of outcomes and set and sometimes set people back, sorry, set people back. I think there's there's two like tools that I think actually are quite helpful that I've come across recently, especially which is talking to that point about, you know, not everyone's going to be a footballer. What else is there to do? and, and what I was talking about earlier, how like a lot of students only know like 10 different career occupations. So one of them is um, this website that I came across by a guy called Zach Hassan called Day of Work, but it's spelled W-R-K, so dayofwrk.com. And it's like a collection of stories um, written in a really relatable kind of manner, people of color talking about what their different careers essentially. And it's beautifully designed and it's, it's it, it, it kind of deliberately goes to maybe the lesser known career occupations. Um, and for students who like stories and who learn through kind of stories and seeing role models, um, you know, that's the kind of thing I think that can be really, really useful actually using it with students and letting them look through that. I also think there's another, for students who are a bit more kind of like data analytics type people, um, they, there's a really good tool um, by an organization called LMI for All um, called the Careerometer. And it basically allows you to compare different um, kind of jobs and career types with not only what they do, but like the projected growth and their projected salary, um, how likely it is to get like replaced by automation, that kind of stuff. So for students who are maybe more analytical, that can also be Uh, you know you can actually have a look side by side different kinds of careers and explore new ones and I think those two concrete kind of tools are actually can be really really helpful um, when digging further into this and um, those are really great tools and I'm sure that'll be useful for our listeners what other Mm. organizations are out there to help our students so I think um, there is essentially um, obviously there's like national Uh, career service which does provide if your school doesn't provide career guidance you can actually call up the career national career service um i would recommend calling them there's a web chat but i think the calling is better Um, and they will give you careers advice over the phone um which um if you know if you're wanting to if you've had a bit of if students have had a bit of support at school but they're wanting more then you can have unlimited calls on there as well which i think is really really helpful um yeah so i think that would be something else to look out for and what does the future look for our students because obviously there are so many changes happening within industry what should Mm. we be what should we be looking out for yeah so I think uh in terms of what we should be looking out for there's going to be a huge huge rise in apprenticeships I mean there's more and more money getting poured into that all of the time um and that's not actually just for students, that's also for, for people who are out of school. So about half of apprenticeships now are started by people over 25. So it's the kind of thing which, if you're thinking about a career change, can also be a way of doing that and getting paid at the same time to do it. But there's going to be much more money going into that. Um, and I think for a lot of students that I work with in school and in university, a lot of them learn by doing, right? And a lot of them learn about themselves by being in a workplace. And I think that option becoming more and more prestigious is gonna be really, really positive uh, development for students in the UK. Um, I also think that um, we talked about more flexibility and agility in jobs. Um, 
there's obviously going to be a lot more of investment in green jobs um, as we move towards net zero as an economy. So um, loads of opportunities across a huge range of industries in that area. Um, and I think also there's going to be quite a lot of, um, yeah, this idea that we were talking about before of kind of trying to craft a career if, in different parts. Okay, so more and more people working part-time project-based type work and, and kind of crafting their own career rather than it relying on a job necessarily. So I think that's why, uh, yeah, teaching some of the skills of how to manage your life, not just your career is actually really important. Um, and I think- And, and so yeah, that's on, interesting. Sophia, sorry. Sorry to mm. interrupt you, Andrea. Yeah, it's interesting. It. It's interesting you say that because obviously you've come from higher education and that's yeah. that's what you're seeing in industry. Whereas there, there are people in the education system making decisions saying mm. that that's not what we should be doing, and they're going back to very traditional ways of schooling. And I'm I'm a bit yeah. confused because I'm just sitting here thinking our economy and our industry is moving in a different direction to what mm. the education system is moving in, and uh. I, I, I'm not. I'm not sure anymore. I'm a bit confused how that lines up. <laughs> I know, and that's the thing. I think which is a big difference between us and other um, countries is just that there isn't that link up between the people who are making policy, the people actually in schools, the students, but also the employers. Like, where is that panel where employers and students and teachers are all there trying to think about? what a kind of fit for purpose curriculum looks like and what fit for purpose careers education in schools look like you know like even in Ofsted now you don't even have to you don't careers is not even a factor in Ofsted you can talk about it in your report but it's not even some I mean we obviously talk with Mehreen that there's a lot of problems with Ofsted but you know careers is not even in the Ofsted framework it's under personal development and you don't have to talk about it um it's not yeah so many students education is so important for for students as as a kind of pathway into the world but then the the world that they're going into isn't actually necessarily what is being talked to them much about at school and so that's we've we've got to sort that basically because that's i mean in your experience i don't know now when you're teaching you know what what are the students kind of saying to you are, are they how much do they know about the world of work what are they excited about so the school that I'm working in right now is disadvantaged and they don't know much about yeah. careers, which is obviously yeah. why we have to get so many people come in to give careers talks. And we use things like speakers for schools. Um, and I, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. In, my, in my own department, I bring in people from industry all the time. But even when people who are coming from industry say similar things to what we're saying right now, but there's some people in the education system who don't believe that. And I'm just sitting here and I'm thinking, yeah. you know, it's the same sort of issues that, you know, we kind of had when we were, we've gone from one extreme to another where we're going in different, we're going in opposite directions. And I, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, how as a country are we going to resolve this? Because obviously, it's a big question, right? It's a it's a big topic. I mean, why are so many graduates not getting into the careers they want? And you know, uh, partly partly that comes down to teaching and and exam results and things like that. But I can't help thinking that there's a there's a potential 
problem with the fact that companies and organisations are not taking responsibility for training new graduates or new entrants who are coming into their industry as well? Yeah, I think um, I think that's something that they also that companies really need to also understand that if you want graduates and school leavers to come in with the skills that you want, you've also got to give them access to your workplaces, you know, uh, and make it easy for them to come and see what the workplace is about. Come in and like, you know, ensure that they're getting training, maybe not even, and, and you're coming into schools and, and, and talking about the realities of the workplace. Maybe not, you know, we shouldn't really be starting this at like age 13, right? We should be starting this in primary school, we should be starting to talk about to students to get them to meet people doing different things, to get them excited, to to talk about what they like doing. Um, so we've got to create that kind of culture from a much younger age. But then I think employers, yeah, got to and, and lots of employers do it really well, but have got to input into the curriculum and also make it easy for students from all backgrounds and particularly students from disadvantaged backgrounds to come and to come and get a flavor for it. Because as we said before, most students, it's hard to conceptualize of your career in the abstract. Like it's much easier if you've got three different work placements and you've had three different experiences, it's much easier to kind of draw conclusions from that. But that's something that only at the moment, the, the kind of the most, the best resourced schools are able to offer. And obviously those are often the schools that cater to the wealthiest students, right? And that's completely the wrong way around. Andrea, thank you so much. <laughs> it's been a fascinating conversation. What was supposed to be, um, you know, a slot has turned into a really huge segment, which has been fantastic because you've given us a wealth of information that I was looking for. Uh, and I'm pretty sure it will help our listeners as well. And it shows me that you are really passionate and dedicated and making huge impact in your field. So thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure, Sovia. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, and uh, wishing everyone a good rest of your day. Great. Right. Thank you to both guests for helping me run the show whilst I'm recovering. We have had technical issues, but that was supposed to happen. <laughs> please do keep safe um, as it is still dangerous out there um, in school. So please make sure that you're looking after your health and well-being um, and not getting too involved uh, with doing more than you should. We have Kalib, Khalil, Herin. Kaylee and Chris on next today 